Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory on a clear, what might be considered an autumn night here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, and we welcome those of you watching our lecture on the World Wide Web, streaming at www.as.arizona.edu, or listening to the podcast posted on iTunes U. This is posted under the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lecture Series, but this particular lecture is actually being sponsored by the Phi Beta Kappa, which is the oldest honorary society in the United States, founded in 1776 uh, at the College of William and Mary. My name is Tom Fleming. Uh, besides being the host of the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series, I am also the president at the moment of the Alpha of Arizona chapter. That means we have the first Phi Beta Kappa chapter in Arizona, <laughs> not ASU. Um, <laughs> and every year, the wonderful people at the National Phi Beta Kappa Association pay to have an eminent scholar come and give a lecture to the public as well as meet with honor students here and also discuss uh, topics with their colleagues. Um, last year, we had Timothy Rowe. Some of you may have been there. He told us what happened to the dinosaurs, right? They became birds. This year, before I introduce our speaker, I want to mention to you that for those of you who are interested in astronomy and would like to continue watching our public evening lectures, our next astronomy lecture will be uh, on October 5th which is, we'll be back on our Monday night schedule. Dr. Mark Gordon, retired from National Radio Astronomy Observatory, will tell you all about radio astronomy. Also, if there are any students that are here for an assignment, I am the person that will validate your assignment with a stamp down at this table at the conclusion of the question and answer period. And it's a clear night. So, the Raymond E. White Jr. 21-inch telescope will be open for public viewing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. If you've never been to it, it's that white building. It's the original Stewart Observatory. It's not the original telescope, but it's the original building. You go up two flights of stairs, and at Professor Campbell's request, we will be observing Pluto this evening, the, the dwarf planet Pluto. But now I would like to introduce this year's uh, Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholar. It is Professor David Campbell from Boston University. David received his bachelor's degree in physics and chemistry from Harvard, but I will, I'm Not a, a bad accent. Well, I'm a <laughs> Cornell man, so I, will, I won't hold that against you. And then he received his PhD at Cambridge in the United Kingdom in, and again, it's applied mathematics and damped. Damped. Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics. And Theoretical Physics. He was a postdoc at the University of Illinois. He's also been at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. Um, he's been at Los Alamos. For the last 15 years, though, he's taught physics at Boston University. And he is going to give us a talk today about nonlinear science from paradigms to practicalities. Professor Campbell. Thank you very much, Tom, for that, that fine introduction. And I wanted to state uh, special thanks to Phi Beta Kappa for sponsoring this kind of program. This is really something that, that I'm enjoying a lot, and I hope uh, you will also enjoy it. I'd like to thank Tom in particular for organizing my visit uh, to Phi Beta Kappa, and my longtime colleague, uh, Shumant Mazumdar, 
who is the head of physics here, uh, who is organizing my time with physics. And finally, I'd like to thank you for coming, and I, I hope you enjoy it. So what I'm talking about today are a series of developments that have happened really over the past four decades that have given us fundamental new insights into how the world works. The fact the world is not the simple linear thing that we often think about, but in fact is complex and nonlinear. And this image, I hope at the end of the evening, you'll be able to tell me how this image uh, reflects the various things I talk about tonight. So I'm going to start with a prologue, which I think is a, a good series of axioms for lecturers. The first axiom is due to the famous mathematician Mark Katz. And that is, you must, in lecturing, you must tell the truth, and nothing but the truth, but not the whole truth. That takes too long. And there's a great uh, axiom by uh, Victor Weisskopf, also a distinguished physicist. Um, it is better to uncover a little than to cover a lot. But the trouble is that most lecturers, and I'm afraid I'm also one of them, tend to follow what I call the Rubia lemma, named after Carlo Rubia, who is a Nobel laureate in physics. Uh, and actually, I asked uh, uh, Tom to mention the fact that they still have overhead projectors here. People remember overhead projectors? People remember transparencies? OK. So Carlo Rubia uh, was giving a talk, a 15-minute talk, at one of the great um, international conferences on um, high energy physics, and he had 100 transparencies for his 15-minute talk. He might as well have stacked them all up at once, and it was that equally opaque. So he was going along like this, and uh, finally someone said something, made a remark. One person made a remark uh, that caused Rubia to pause. And I'm going to use a trick we're using these days with lectures. I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbors and talk, what was the comment that stopped Rubia in his tracks? Please just take a few seconds to talk to each other. And what do you think it was? What would stop him in his tracks? Ms. Mary. Uh, yeah. More, 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 more discussion among the. Well, that well, getting the, the word. The word was mentioned. How about this? <laughs> and that did stop. He actually did slow down, and <laughs> there was something communicated. So, if I hear, if, if I go start going too fast, please say faster, and I will slow down. <laughs> okay, so. What I want to talk about today has several components. I don't know why this Mac is not giving me a big enough thing to see down here. But uh, first, I want to talk about the basic intuition on linear versus nonlinear. And uh, you'll see what that, what that means. And then I want to explain why we suddenly have had, in the last three or four decades, an interest in nonlinear science when, in, in some sense, this subject could have been studied uh, literally at the time of Newton. And then I want to talk about what I call the three paradigms of nonlinear science. Uh, those are chaos and fractals. How many people have heard of chaos? OK, good. Uh, then in solitons and coherent structures. How many people have heard of solitons? OK, that's a much smaller number. That's typical. Uh, so that's good. And then I'm going to talk about patterns and, con and configurations. And what I'm going to try to convince you is these three things are paradigms in the sense that they exist in many nonlinear systems and that they can explain the behavior in a general way uh, of nonlinearity 
And uh, so they're extremely important to understand. And then I'll summarize. So let's start with, by talking about what is the uh, distinction between linear and nonlinear systems uh, mathematically. And that's actually pretty simple. In a linear system, uh, if you have two solutions to the problem, it's linear, you can add them together, it's still a solution. And if you think about it, uh, for the more sophisticated mathematically, that's responsible for all the techniques we use to solve linear problems, no matter how complicated the boundary conditions are. A Fourier transform, a Laplace transform, you break the problem up into small parts, and you add it back together, and it's still a solution. For nonlinear nonlinear equations, this is simply not true. By the way, that's called the superposition principle. This is not big enough for me to read. I don't know why it's doing this. But I have, so I have, if I keep turning up here, please forgive me. But the superposition principle is what allows you to add solutions together. For nonlinear systems, superposition is not true. As you see up there in the famous complicated algebraic equation, a plus b quantity squared is not a squared plus b squared. There's the cross term 2ab. And so you cannot a priori add together two solutions and get another solution. And that's responsible for the fact you have to solve nonlinear problems not in pieces, but sort of in toto. Now, physically, uh, the distinction is actually less precise, but, uh, but I think a lot more interesting. So linear systems are typically smooth and regular as a function of their parameters. Uh, things flow smoothly. They uh, respond in proportion to their stimulation. You push something a little bit, it responds a little bit. You push something twice a little bit, it responds twice a little bit. Uh, also, typically in linear systems, initial pulses tend to decay and spread out. That's called dispersion. For nonlinear systems, you see, you see the following. You see transitions, and we'll show examples of this, from smooth and regular motion to erratic or random or chaotic behavior. We'll define these terms more precisely. You see self-sustained oscillations, a response that can differ from stimulation. For your heart to beat at roughly 70 beats a minute, you do not need to put your finger into the light socket. In fact, that's a bad idea. Okay? Your heart is, responds with self-sustained nonlinear oscillations. And we'll also see that there are these highly coherent, stabilized, localized structures in spatially extended nonlinear systems. These, these are the solitons. So you see the contrast between the linear and nonlinear is uh, really quite striking. One way to think of it, uh, how many people are, are, are trout fishermen or like to fish in the mountains? Uh, a few, good. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you fish in, a, in, a, in a, lo- a large meadow area where the flow is rather smooth and regular, you cast your fly and you can follow its path very regularly. You, you know exactly where it's going. But if you're looking in a cascade of, of sort of down the mountain of pools with lots of uh, rocks in between, there's lots of eddies and irregular stuff. You cast your fly in one eddy, and it spins around for a while and it spits out. That's the kind of di- distinction between the linear, the smooth linear flow, and the, and the nonlinear flow. OK. So let me start with one of the simplest things that, uh, how, how many people had high school physics? Excellent. OK, the majority. So the first thing they taught you, one of the first things they taught you in high school physics was a lie. Okay? Not, not atypical in, uh, in, in, in our way we teach things. So a system can be linear in some motions 
and nonlinear in others. So for example, Galileo's law or statement that the pendulum, so this is my attempt to imitate Galileo, swinging back, this was actually a, a sensor making, making uh, sending out incense in the, in the uh, cathedral in Pisa, so you have to imagine yourself back in Pisa, uh, that the pendulum, the period, was independent of the pendulum's amplitude is wrong. If you go to large amplitudes, oops, the period depends on the amplitude. So it's only true for small angles. So this is actually, I, I, I will admit, I am going to have some equations. I apologize. Uh, this is Newton's law written for the plane pendulum. It says that the acceleration, this is ma, this is f, this is gravity pulling the pendulum back down, and it depends on the sine of the angle. Okay, That's just the way it is. Now the sine, uh, this recalls back to your uh, high school trigonometry, the sine of the sum of two angles is the sine of one angle times the cos of the other plus the cos times the sine. So it's not equal to the sine of one plus the sine of two. So it's a nonlinear function. It's nonlinear. And because it's nonlinear, you have only, only in the approximation that theta is a very small angle. So sine theta is roughly theta and cos theta is 1, do you get Galileo's pendulum? And this gives you the constant, Galileo's constant pendulum. That gives you the constant period. So very fundamentally, for nonlinear equations, typically, and for this, the period is not, uh, is a function of the amplitude, and so you have frequencies and periods that depend on how strong the motion is. In fact, if you take an inverted pendulum, the period, in principle, goes to infinity. It takes an infinite time for the pendulum to turn around. Okay? So that's the important distinction between linear and nonlinear. So why do we suddenly have this interest in nonlinear science? What I've described to you could literally have been uh, discussed by Galileo and written down and probably even partially solved, uh, not entirely, by Newton. So the first... Um, the first, I think, main development is what I will call experimental mathematics. And that's the use of computers to solve problems that could not be solved analytically. Not to try to just get numbers out, but to get insights, new insights into how systems work. The second is very high precision uh, experimental results, which confirmed some of the earlier speculations of or numerical results of computers and analytic speculations. And finally, the third part of the tripart methodology has been the development of new analytic methods. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about them for um, solving some of these nonlinear problems. Uh, but that's, that's technical, but I think I can make clear what the ideas are. So the point is, this tripartite methodology uh, has enabled great progress in nonlinear science, but I just told you most nonlinear problems are intractable and have to be solved in total. So I've, even though it's early, it's getting late in the evening, you must ask the question, well, how, how can this really work? And the answer is, you don't have systematic methods of solution, but you do have, have a, a couple, three in fact, universal, seemingly universal paradigms that describe or appear in nonlinear systems. So the first one is so-called chaos and fractals. 
this, as we will see, is a, apparently random motion in very simple systems. Motion that is just as random as a coin flip, even though the system is very simple. The second are these so-called solitons, or coherent structures. These we'll see are persistent localized structures in spatially extended systems. And the third is patterns or configurations. So these are formations, complex spatial formations, that emerge from uniform spatial initial conditions and lead to competition and selection among them. So if you want to remember three things from the lecture, you can remember the three words chaos, solitons, and patterns, and you'll have a pretty good understanding of what we're talking about. So let me start out. This whole context of nonlinear science is in the context of what are called nonlinear dynamical systems. And if you go to the math department here, they'll tell you, they'll, they'll teach you a course or three or four on nonlinear dynamical systems. So what is a dynamical system? Something that changes in time. Anything that changes in time. So it could be a flower. Uh, it could be the pendulum, as I talked about. Or to give you an example that you won't forget, the human heart. So your heart is a nonlinear, dissipative dynamical system. What do I mean by dissipative? It doesn't conserve energy. It takes in energy, uh, moves muscles, and it gives off heat. So it doesn't conserve energy. It's not, not Hamiltonian. Uh, and normally, the heart has a roughly uh, regular beat, self-sustained, again, no, no fingers in the outlet, oscillations at about 70 per minute. Of course, the rate can change with stress. Uh, for instance, if you're giving a lecture, your heartbeat goes up a little bit, or if you're late to class and you rush up the stairs. But it re normally returns to something that is called a, a limit cycle attractor. Whoops, let me go back. So you have a regular beat. So unfortunately, there's another uh, stable motion of the heart, and that is no beating at all. And this is called a fixed point attractor. So turn to your neighbors and tell me what you call this. Good, everyone got that one. Okay. But it turns out there are many other uh, possible motions of the heart. The heart was actually one of the first things studied as a nonlinear oscillator by Vanderpol and Vandermark in the 20s. Beautiful work. And, uh, these uh, things like uh, atrial fibrillations, you may have all heard of that, Wenckebach oscillations, which are a four to three beat between the two parts of the heart, locked in. Uh, all these arrhythm arrhythmias, uh, very complicated behavior in time. And sometimes they may even have what's called a strange attractor, which I will come back to later. So your heart is a good way to remember what a nonlinear dynamical system can do. Many possible behaviors, some of them bad, some of, them, some, of them, some of them very bad. So atrial fibrillations are annoying, and you have to treat them. Ventricular fibrillations will kill you in a few minutes. So you have to be, uh, so this is, but it's simple. They can all be described by models of nonlinear oscillations. OK, so now we have another quiz. Which of these traces is the normal uh, human heartbeat? Is it A, C, B, or D? Turn to your neighbors. One of our instructors left these here. I can hand these. Uh, no, no, we, I don't. You don't want to use them? No. All right. Well, we could. <laughs> I don't. I, I, that's a, uh, this, is a, this is a technique we, we are using in teaching our students because it gets the class involved. And I'm really pleased you guys are all involved. But just turn to your neighbors and take a look. What do you think? Get some, get some thoughts. <coughs> 
Actually, maybe, you know, well, it's a little, it'll slow us down, but that's a, that's a good, that was a good suggestion, though, Tom. Okay, I'm, he I'm, hearing, lots, I'm hearing lots of different answers, so I won't, I won't force anybody to, to uh, scream out what his group has come up with. But, so A, A looks pretty, pretty, pretty lame. So that you, you right? That's heart failure, yeah. Now C looks like it could be reasonable. It's very, very regular, but tough luck. And D's got a lot of, of, of stuff, but that's actually those famous atrial fibrillations. That's normal. Oh, why is it normal? Think about it for a minute, OK? If I run up these stairs, what does my heart have to do? Exactly. So it has, your heart has to be able to adjust going up and down. And so the heart variability is the key to adapt to different situations and stresses. And that's what the same thing as the, the frequency of the pendulum changing with amplitude. That's the same thing. That's typical of a nonlinear oscillator. And so the heart is the ultimate example, not the ultimate, is the paradigm, oh, I used that word already, is the hydrogen atom of, 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 uh, of nonlinear systems. OK, we're, we're doing well. So now I want to come to uh, uh, some beautiful stuff on the history of uh, chaos uh, and fractals. So chaos, we've already said, is the seemingly random behavior in deterministic systems. That is, those obeying Newton, Newton's laws, F equals MA. Those of you who know quantum mechanics, forget it. F equals MA. <laughs> this is very non-intuitive at first. And why is that? It's because we have this concept of the clockwork universe from uh, this wonderful French gentleman, uh, Pierre Simon de Laplace. And I think I actually have his quote here, if I can read it. The screen is unfortunately too small. But fortunately, I managed to bring a paper copy. OK. So <clears throat> here, here's the picture we have. Here's the intuition. Here's a, a physicist's universe. I have uh, three particles. They're colored uh, red, blue, and I guess that's teal, if you uh, and uh, should be green. Uh, and if you know all the initial conditions and the velocities, and you look at the universe at a later period of time, from Newton's laws, you can calculate the exact position of these things. Okay? And so here's what Laplace said about this. An intellect which at any given moment knew all the forces that animate nature and the mutual interactions, positions of the beings that comprise it, if this intellect were vast enough to submit its data to analysis, could condense into a single formula the movement of the greatest bodies of the universe and that of the lightest atom. For such an intellect, nothing would be uncertain. The future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. That is, ladies and gentlemen, determinism at its extreme. Okay? But what's the problem with that? It turns out that exact knowledge of the initial state comes from exact, uh, sorry, from exact knowledge of the initial state comes exact knowledge of the final state in classical mechanics. This is true. But can we ever know an initial state exactly? So I tell the story of the professor who is coming up for a tenure decision. Uh, she's got a graduate student who's working hard in the lab. And to get tenure, he, she needs to get from the graduate student 10 digits of accuracy. Uh, that's OK, but now she wants to go up for a young career award, and she needs 15 digits of accuracy. But then she wants to get a really big award, and she needs 20 digits of accuracy. And no matter how much I push, you can never get exact knowledge. 
What was realized, and we'll, by, uh, we'll see this in a minute by Henri Poincaré, is that the hidden assumption has been if you're roughly in the same place, you're going to have roughly the same outcome. And that is simply not true in a chaotic system. You have sensitive dependence on initial conditions beyond belief. And this is the uh, insight of this gentleman, Henri Poincaré, in the early, uh, actually the insight was in, early in the 1890s. But, so let me read you what he wrote. A small cause which escapes our notice determines a considerable effect that we cannot fail to see. And then we say the effect is due to chance. If we knew exactly the laws of nature and the situation of the universe at the initial moment, we could predict exactly the situation of that same universe at a succeeding moment. But even if it were the case that the natural laws had no longer any secret for us, we could still only know the initial situation approximately. If that enabled us to predict the succeeding situation with the same approximation, that is all we require. And we should say the phenomena had been predicted, that is governed by laws. But it is not always so. It may happen that small differences in initial conditions produce very great ones in the final phenomena. A small error in the former will produce an enormous error in the latter. Prediction becomes impossible, and we have the fortuitous phenomenon. So sensitive dependence on initial conditions is the basis of deterministic chaos. So this is codified by something that's called the technical term, the Lyapunov exponent. And what it says is two points that differ by a tiny little bit at one time separate exponentially in time as you go on. You cannot predict that. This is due to this, this gentleman, Alexander Mikhailovich uh, Lyapunov. Uh, and the geometrical essence, and this is really important, this is another th one of the takeaway messages. The geometrical essence of chaos is you have this sensitive dependence which causes the points to separate exponentially in time, but you're in a region where the motion is bounded. They just don't run off to infinity. So how can they separate exponentially in time and still stay bounded? Well, they have to fold over. So the essence of chaos is stretching and folding, and it's just the way you make a millefeuille pastry or a croissant. And what's the difference between a croissant and a bagel? Well, yeah, wait. So a croissant is not really three-dimensional. It's layers and layers and layers. It's two-dimensional plus a little bit for the layers. And a bagel is really three-dimensional. And we'll see that. So these, this stretching and folding is the essence of chaos. So now let's get, uh, I apologize for some equations, but I think I can, uh, I think I'm carrying you along. I think we can make this. So let's make a model of populations, simplest model you can imagine. The population next year is some constant number times the population this year. You can take it as the birth rate, something like that, the fecundity, they call it. So if this is true, then the population after one generation is this parameter r times p0. After two generations, it's p2 is r times p1, which is r squared times p0, etc. So in the nth generation, the population is this constant number r to the n times p0. Now, that's only stable if r is exactly equal to 1, right? If r is bigger than 1, this goes to infinity, as n goes to infinity. If r is less than 1, this goes to 0. So this linear population model is extremely fragile. It only has stable populations at one example. But is it realistic to assume that there's nothing that limits population? Of course not. 
So there are lots of things. Overcrowding, uh, lack of space, etc. So in the real world, food supply uh, limit population growth. And if we suppose that there is a maximum population that could be supported, so we normalize our x's, our p's by the p max. And since the population has to be between 0 and p max, then x is between 0 and 1. And there's a simple nonlinear map called the logistic map, which is, relates the population at the next generation to the population of this generation. And you see it's nonlinear because as x approaches the limiting value of the population, this goes back to 0. It's a nonlinear map. This is, uh, not, I mean, this is something you haven't seen probably before, but just think about it for a minute. We, I tell you, I, you give me the population of this generation, and I determine deterministically, exactly, the population in the next generation as a function of, of this, the population in this generation and this parameter r. So now we want to see what happens to this simple, very simple equation uh, as we change the value of r. So these are the results. We're going to follow the population over time by what's called iterating the logistic map. We're going to do this many, many times, many, many generations. And we're going to ask, does the population go to a stable value as we go to many, many, variations, many generations, or does it do something else weird? Okay. So what's called transients, that is things that aren't stable, don't go, don't go to a fixed value, we find the population goes to a, a limiting set after the transients die out, which has the following properties. If r is less than 1, we go to a fixed point, and that fixed point is 0, so the population dies out. So we're back in the case of r less than 1 in the linear model. But for r between 1 and 3, the population goes to a fixed point at the value 1 minus 1 over r. You see that at 1, 1 minus 1 over 1 is 0. And at 3, 1 minus 1 over 3 is 2 thirds. So the population smoothly varies as a function of r from 0, uh, from zero to uh, 2 thirds. But surprisingly, above 3, the population shows an incredibly complicated behavior. It goes to a period of cycles. So the population first has what's called a period two. One year the population is high, next year low. One year high, next year low, period two. Then it goes to period four. Oops. And then period eight. And then period 16. And then all possible powers of period two before this certain critical value, about 3.59. And this is a famous period doubling transition to chaos. So let me stop here. How many people have actually heard that term before? OK. Did you read it in Jim Glick's book, or you just knew about it uh, generally? So there's a very famous book called Chaos, The Making of New Science, that was actually a number one bestseller uh, when, when Glick wrote it. Uh, this is the work of Mitchell Feigenbaum. This period doubling transition to chaos was found in this incredibly simple little map. Okay, but well, we'll come to that in a minute. So the question is, uh, above this critical value, when you have two to the infinity period, you sometimes get true chaotic behavior with a positively Lyapunov exponent. We'll come to that in a minute. Let me just go ahead here. So here's the image. This is the attracting set, the limiting population 
of the logistic map, this is what your population would look like as a function of this parameter r. It's hard to read here, but this is about three point, it is hard to read. This is four, this is 3.4, I think. Okay. So what does this say? This says that for this region, the population alternates in between two years. In this region, the population oscillates over four years. One, two, three, four, back to one. Here, it's eight years. And you can sort of see maybe 16, but it's getting hard. So look at this structure. Over here, you see huge variants of population oscillating very rapidly uh, over a period of years. So let's ask what happens. What do you think happens if I expand this small region around here? Right, well, so this, this exactly looks, looks like right here. This straight line looks like, well, we don't see the period one orbit here, right? Because I've cut it off. But there's a period two here, and then there's four. Indeed, what you see is exactly the same thing. It happens to be inverted. That's a technicality. But you see exactly the same kind of structure. And that means the, the fact that you have similar structure on all scales is an evidence of a fractal structure. That's what fractal means. That's similar structure on all scales. So uh, what do you think happens if we expand that small region? What do you think? Same thing. But it's going to be flipped over, right, because we flipped it over. Same thing. Now, I didn't, I didn't do that, because that takes a lot of time, computer time to do it. But the answer is we see, you see the same thing, but flipped. OK, so that's uh, already you understand at this level, fractals. Uh, let's look at this Lyapunov exponent. I said if the Lyapunov exponent were positive, you actually had chaotic behavior, because you had this exponential separation of trajectories. Uh, so you can see that for r greater than about, uh, this, is, this is actually 3.59, there are regions where you have regular stable behavior. I'm sorry, where you have chaotic behavior. So this is a tricky one. So I should go back and show you the picture. OK. So notice that just before this region, which we blew up, there's a, a, a region where we have, what is the period of this orbit? Three, exactly. So the Lyapunov exponent goes very negative here. What is this dip at 3.4? It's the stable period 3 orbit. So we can understand all of these details in, 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 uh, in clear mathematical detail. And the Lyapunov exponent tells you when you have chaos and when you don't. Now, that's a technical point I won't go into. Most important, this is probably the most important thing. This is a simple logistic quadratic map. You can teach this to sixth graders. I, I have done it. And they, they, they take their computers out, and they understand it and follow it. But in fact, it's been seen in experiments. The period doubling transition to chaos has been seen with all the universality that was predicted by Mitchell Feigenbaum in this important paper for which he and Liebschaber shared the Wolf Prize uh, by predicting that they would have a certain uh, ratio of, of the, of the uh, higher moments, the period two, period four, period 8 as you went through the period doubling. So universality 
in nonlinear systems means that the simplest system you can write down that has a particular symmetry can capture the behavior of a much more complicated system. Liebschaube's experiments were done in liquid helium. Okay? Liquid helium flow. That's not a simple nonlinear map. You can't write it down. And yet, it had the same results as Feigenbaum's analysis of the logistic map. Okay. So here's what we've learned from the logistic map. We've seen that we have self-similar structure at all levels, and that the attracting set shows an incredibly rich behavior as a function of this parameter. We've seen that when this Lyapunov exponent is positive, nearby solutions separate in time, and that's the sensitive dependence on universality. And most importantly, we've, I, I've, I've stated, I haven't proved, that we have this universality property. But this is just not just some sort of mathematical weird thing that happens in this uh, equation that's of interest to nobody, but happens in real world systems. And it has been observed. It was the, the most famous initial thing was by Liebschaber in fluid flows. But it's been observed in, in the pendulum, electrical circuits, many, many physical systems. Okay. So let's now try to understand what, what this idea of a strange attractor is. What is it like? What does it look like? And here we come to something which I think you probably all, uh, well, this is, this is a tougher one. Uh, this is a, uh, a strange attractor uh, was, the term was uh, applied more or less first in the work of Lorenzo Dueda. This is a, a deterministic motion which has no particular period, okay? And, uh, and, but, and is, in fact, related to chaos. So this is probably the toughest turn to your neighbor one I've given you. If you take the logistic map, can the strange attractor in the logistic map consist of a finite number of points? To talk, to talk about it. This is not trivial. Talk about it. Yeah. Is that possible? Remember, it's completely deterministic. So if I give you one value, the next value is determined. Okay, so if I ever come back to the same value, then the next value must be the same as the second. Take the first value. Imagine you come back to the first value at some time. Then the next iteration must give you the second value, right? And then the third. So it must be periodic, but it's not periodic. So the strange attractor cannot consist of a finite number of points. It must have more length, more dimension than any finite number of points. So for those of you who know about Cantor sets, we'll come back to them in a minute, we're heading toward a fractal dimension, something bigger than a point, but less than a line. That was hard. Okay. It turns out that the logistic map, exactly at, our, our, at the value of critical value, 3.59, et cetera, has a fractional dimension of 0.538, a point is fractal is dimension zero, a line has dimension one. This is something between a point and a line. So that is, that is the definition of a fractal. Infinitely bigger than a point, but infinitely smaller than a line. Okay, that. And now it's time to recall this geometrical insight that the, the stretching and the folding lead to this layered structure, this mufoy structure uh, like Fieldo, where the, the reason the croissant is light is because the layers of butter separate the layers of pastry, and it's not really three-dimensional. Slice through a croissant, and you see big, big areas of, 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 of open space. And that's basically, it's a layered structure, which is not quite, uh, quite three-dimensional. So here are the images 
of the Lorentz attractor. There's Ed Lorentz, who developed this in, in just, just a little over 50 years ago. So this is motion in question, sure. Question? OK. So Lorentz was, writing, Lorentz was writing a simple model for atmospheric uh, turbulent, atmospheric flow. And in fact, um, he was worried about something that Poincaré mentioned. So maybe I should read the Poincaré quote. So Poincaré realized the sensitive dependence. And he knew that there would be uh, the possibility, uh, for instance, he gave an example of, uh, of weather prediction. Here's what he actually, this is in 1910. Why have meteorologists such difficulty in predicting the weather with any certainty? Why is it that showers or even storms seem to come by chance? So that many people think it is quite natural to pray for rain or fine weather, though they would consider it ridiculous to, uh, to pray for an eclipse by prayer. We see great disturbances that are generally produced in regions where the atmosphere is in an unstable equilibrium. The meteorologists see very well the equilibrium is unstable, that a cyclone will be formed somewhere, but, not exact, but exactly where they are not in a position to say. A tenth of a degree, more or less, at a given point, and the cyclone will burst. Sorry. Ah. Burst here and not there, and extend the ravages over districts it would otherwise have spared. If they had been aware of this tenth of a degree, they could have known it beforehand, but the observations were neither sufficiently comprehensive nor sufficiently precise. And this is the reason why it all seems to be due to the intervention of chance. Here again, we find the same contrast between a trifling cause, inappreciable to the observable, and the considerable effects, which are sometimes terrible disasters. So the sensitive dependence on initial conditions is what makes weather forecasting so difficult. So this is a picture of the Lorentz attractor. It's an equation, three equations that describe the flow of, uh, of a thermal convection in a model of the atmosphere. And what you see is this very complicated layered behavior. The, the actual color coding here is the first 5,000 iterations were colored green. Uh, the next were colored blue. And in this picture, what you see is white is where the green and blue overlap. So that's one view. Here's another view. And here's the view that you can say gives the idea of the butterfly effect, which is what is famous in chaos. The fact that, the, as Lorenz said in a famous talk, the flapping of a butterfly's wings in Texas can change the weather in Boston the next day. So uh, this, is, this is actually, uh, oh, let's see. This is a fractal structure which is between two and three dimensions. It's not really, it's in three-dimensional space, but it's not really three-dimensional. It's 2.06 dimensions. So this is another nonlinear system, another map. And I'm not going to dwell on the mathematics of this at all. I'm going to show you a whole bunch of pictures, which I hopefully, hopefully will make it clear. This is a model in which you have two variables. And the variable pn plus 1 and the variable qn plus 1 are given in terms of the variables pn and qn in this matter. Notice there's pn plus 1 here. And so I could substitute this whole equation. But I didn't. It makes it messier. This is a nonlinear equation, because here's the sine, which is an, we've agreed is a nonlinear function. And the amount of nonlinearity is determined by k, this parameter. For k equals 0, there's no nonlinearity. Well, that's a technical point. So for k equals 0, there's no nonlinearity. And 
that means that Pn plus 1 is equal to Pn. For the, for the experts, these are models of the momentum and coordinate, and the momentum is not changed if there's no force on the system. And so this wraps around. Uh, we, I should mention we have this side is equal to that side, this side is equal to that side, so it's a, like a donut, right, called a torus, wrapped around. Okay, so this is the motion for k equals 0. And now let's look at what happens uh, in general for a series of, of values of k. Here's k equals 0, and you see the motion is just straightforward. The momentum, this is the momentum, this is q, p and q. p is constant, and you just wrap around the torus. Now let's make it a little tiny bit of nonlinearity, very weak, and you see already that this point at q equals a half has gotten strange, and the orbits are a little weird. Remember how to interpret this. It's periodic. This side is equal to that side. That side is equal to this side. So this green orbit actually goes here, and then here, and then here, and then here. So the green orbit is now closed. Okay, it's been around. It's like, it's like a little orbit around here. Now let's go a little, little higher, and you start to see interesting things. A little higher still, and now what you see is very interesting structures developing. You see points of regular motion, which are these, these circular things. This is actually, if you look at it in detail, a motion that goes from here to here to here which is the same as this by the periodic boundary conditions, right? Think of this as wrapped around. And so that's a period 2 orbit. Here's a regular island of period 3, right here, from here to here to here, which is the same as that. And so you see the, the nonlinearity has taken these beautiful, simple straight lines and mixed things up in a way that's causing all sorts of higher nonlinear periodicities. If you go, this is an example of what happens at, one, at k equals 1.1. And what you see are islands of stability in a region which is called a canter dust or chaotic sea. The, the color coding is where you initially started. So the fact that you see yellow points throughout this whole region tells you that starting at this, this yellow point here, you move this whole, whole region of the space of motion, possible motions. This is characteristic of chaotic motion. You, can move, you don't stay in within these nice little safe little islands. You move around the whole of what's called phase space. So here's k equals 5. You see chaos almost everywhere, except for these two little islands. And at k equals 8, you see chaos everywhere. So this tells you several things. It tells you that most of the time, dynamical systems, like the pendulum, are regular in some regimes, but irregular in others. And as you crank up the nonlinearity, you typically find more and more irregularity. Okay? All right. So one more thing about the logistic map, and this is interesting. Uh, we saw that nice picture. This is, a, this is the same picture, a slightly different detail, of k equals 1.1. And this, these, these things have an interesting story. So here is the original map from 0 to 1, 0 to 1, periodic boundary conditions. And now you see what we saw before. But now I'm going to blow up this little white region. And what do you think we're going to see? Pretty much the same thing. Well, it's not quite flipped, but it's still the point. Oh, now, now I'm going to blow up this little region. What do you think we're going to see? 
Okay. I'm going to blow up this little region. What do you think we're going to see? I'm going to blow up this little region. What do you think we're going to see? Okay, I'm going to blow up this little region. What do you think we're going to see? And this is actually the last region I've blown up. Remember, the original region was from 0 to 1. This is from 0.450198 to 0.450355, a tiny, tiny little region in what's called phase space, similarly small in, in, in P. So these are actually old pictures. They're made in, uh, in the uh, late, uh, well, actually, yeah, in the late 80s in Los Alamos, and I'm still using them. And can anybody tell me why I could? Well, if I tried to run this on my, on, my, uh, on my Mac, how long would it take me to get back to this little, little story? So this is a great story. One of the graduate students at the Center for Nonlinear Studies, where I was then the director, uh, decided he was going to study this. And so he put, ran on, on the Cray, which was the, the fastest supercomputer in the world at the time. He ran over the weekend these studies and, and, and to come back to this tiny, tiny region. And he expended the entire computer budget of the Center for Nonlinear Studies in the weekend. <laughs> so uh, he, he was chagrined, and, and I was annoyed. And so I had to write this apologetic memo to the computer division saying that we had this rogue graduate student who had to burned up our computer budget. Would they please give us back our money? Um, and they did, but we have the pictures. So it was, it was, it was worth it. And I, I, will not, I will not run this on my Mac, because it would take um, probably years. So what we heard about, uh, about Pluto, very recently, there's been a discovery of that the moons of Pluto are, in, uh, are actually undergoing chaotic rotations, uh, but because of the resonances between them. And there's a great quote from NASA about this. This one I can read. If you lived on one of Pluto's moons, Nix or Hydra, you'd have a hard time setting your alarm clock. That's because you would not know for sure when, or even in which direction, the sun would rise. A comprehensive analysis of all available Hubble Space Telescope data shows that two of Pluto's moons, Nix and Hydra, are wobbling unpredictably, that is, chaotically. Scientists believe that two other moons, Kerberos and Styx, are likely in similar situations pending further study. So the chaos here is causing the moon to wobble in such a way you, the sun is not going to rise in the east. It might rise in the north or the southwest. And it, so this is uh, an example of chaos. OK. I've taken, uh, oh yeah, and we're going to afterwards visit the observatory uh, to observe Pluto. Um, so I've taken a very long time over chaos. I'm not sure that I, I do want to follow Weisskopf's example of uncovering a little rather than covering a lot. Uh, but chaos is practical in the sense of control. This is a demonstration which is better done by a seal than done by me. But the pendulum is unstable if it's, if it's inverted. But if you move the, ah, no, I'm going to take that down. It needs to, it, for, for me to balance it with my, uh, you know, my stability care criterion, I need to have a bigger, heavier thing. But you can balance this upside down if you move the bottom. Try buying one of these pointers these days. I couldn't, I couldn't get a longer one on Amazon in the time frame. Very annoying. OK, uh, I'm going to skip this thing. I'm going to show you only pictures of fractals. They exist in nature. This is an example of what happens in dialectic breakdown. Oops. This is a human lung, uh, where you see many uh, levels of branching, actually 18 down to the finest tubules. 
I used to joke that this was the, the long taken from the graduate student who used up our budget, but that, that's probably a little bit sick. Uh, and then we have uh, some other examples of where, where uh, fractals are relevant, for instance, to the uh, erosion of a, uh, a shoreline. You go from a fairly regular motion to uh, a very irregular one. So let me make sure that I get through solitons, because this is really important. So imagine you have wave-like motion oops, in one dimension. And I'm going to define a solitary wave as uh, a localized disturbance. So uh, in technical terms, that means it moves with a certain velocity, and it stays localized in this coordinate x minus vt. So it doesn't, it doesn't spread out. Uh, this is a technical point. So the soliton is a solitary wave that is exactly preserves its amplitude and shape and velocity after collisions with all other waves. This is a terminology that was given to it by Zabuski and Kruskal. The on, the soliton, makes it a particle-like object, like neutron, proton. Okay? And, it's a, and it's solitary, so it's called a soliton. <coughs> so <coughs> historical observation, a very famous quote. I, I'm, I won't indulge by reading this. But this gentleman, John Scott Russell, was riding along a Scottish canal in August 34, 1834, and he saw a barge stop, and a wave came off, a bow wave came off. And the bow wave moved down this narrow canal. He was on a horse, and he was riding it, and he, it was going at a speed that the horse could ride. I mean, not faster, but not slow. And it stayed together. It didn't spread out. It stayed as a lump. And he, he, it's a very colorful description of what happened as, as he followed this thing many miles down the canal. And that was his first description of what he called the giant uh, uh, wave of translation. Um, here's an example of a famous Soliton conference in, 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 uh, in the canal uh, in Scotland, where this group of, uh, of physicists and mathematicians with their little boat pushed this wave into the canal. And it actually followed it for quite a, uh, quite a ways. So this is a, a real phenomenon. So where do you find solitons? Well, there's a simple, trivial thing. If you take a linear equation, so you can add together solutions, you can make a wave going to the right and a wave going to the left. And that's at a large negative time, they'll come together. There'll be some lump at t equals 0, and they'll separate. So that's trivial, because you can add together solutions. As I said, the very beginning, superposition. But the big surprise was that in some nonlinear equations, some nonlinear dispersive equations, you can have these solitons. And the intuition, the same thing of, that I tried to give intuition for chaos, the intuition is dispersion tells you that the initial wave pulse spreads out as different components move with different wave speeds. But nonlinearity tells you that where the amplitude of the wave is big, it goes faster, and so that leads to breaking. And so dispersion and nonlinearity can balance and lead to something that propagates with a constant velocity. And this is now, this is a real homework exercise for people who want to abuse themselves with their mathematics. Uh, this is the so-called Cordovig-De Vries equation. It describes the motion that uh, Scott Russell saw and that we saw in the canal. It has this nonlinear partial differential equation. All you need to know is these are, these are derivatives with respect to time and space. This is clearly nonlinear because it's u times u. 
not linear. This is the third derivative, which makes it dispersive. And this solution is an exact solution to that equation. Cool, exact. Who said cool? Yeah. <laughs> it is cool, very cool. Uh, what this says is the velocity determines the speed, the velocity, of, uh, sorry, velocity of the wave determines the amplitude of the wave. The amplitude is three times the velocity. And the width is 1 over the square root of the velocity. The faster it goes, the larger it is, and the narrower it gets. Exact solution. Okay. So here is uh, some, uh, again, what we'll do is now do some simulations. We see a, a large soliton behind a small soliton. So what do we expect to happen? The large soliton moves with a faster velocity. So it's going to catch the smaller soliton. And then what's going to happen? Well, it's nonlinear. Everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket, right? No. Oops, what's going on here? So this is, uh, let me skip these two pictures. What you can see here is, well, not this one. I'll skip that one. The larger, faster soliton catches up with the slower soliton. And then the larger soliton goes ahead. But it doesn't go ahead as if it had been uninteracted with. It, it's moved slightly. It's, it's been pushed forward. There's a phase shift. And the slower one is pushed backward. So that there's, there's an effect of the interaction, but the solitons persist. And trust me, this was really a huge surprise when it was first seen. This is an actual uh, calculation of the large soliton catching the small soliton. You see they both persist uh, as you go through. Okay. So you know, that was one nonlinear equation. Maybe it was luck. Who knows? Well, it turns out there were a series of other nonlinear equations. I, don't, I won't abuse you again with the mathematics. All, all I want you to see is this is a nonlinear equation, because it has this wave function psi squared. And this is nonlinear. We've already been through this. The sine is not a linear function. These two equations, it turns out that these also have exact soliton solutions. By exact, I mean they, the waves pass, the solitons interact with each other and pass through. And in fact, this is nice. How do we know that? Well, it turns out there is a uh, experimental mathematics was used uh, in, by studying these things numerically. But then there was something called the inverse scattering transform developed. And I definitely wanted to mention this because two of the inventors were here, uh, are here at the University of Arizona. And this is an interesting story also historically because it was discovered independently in the former Soviet Union and in the US at a time when we weren't communicating with each other scientifically, literally within, within, uh, within months of each other. So the Zakharov and Shabbat equation, many of you may know uh, Volodya Zakharov. He's here on the faculty in, in mathematics. And then the so-called Abelowitz, Kalp, Newell, and Seeger. The Newell is your own Alan Newell. So Arizona has a definite history in this. Uh, so why do we care about solitons? Uh, a lot of details, but I think the most important thing is that they exist at all is amazing. We had this simple map, two simple maps, which showed chaos and irregular behavior. And yet these systems, which are <coughs> technically infinite dimensional, maintain their regularity <coughs> despite not being nonlinear. Uh, more generally, soliton, not solitons, but not quite exactly solitons, can dominate 
the behavior of the system. So you start out with random junk, and it separates into these solitons, localized structures. And it turns out that many, many, I won't go through the details here, but many physical systems are well approximated by soliton equations. Uh, this is more technical, but soliton uh, excitations have been observed and studied widely in models in physics, uh, for nuclear physics, condensed matter physics, particle physics, atmospheric physics, vortices. So these things are very common, localized, stable, nonlinear structures. And they have uh, an exquisitely beautiful mathematical structure, which is uh, of great interest to the mathematicians, uh, but beyond the scope of this lecture. So now let me show you some pretty pictures, which shows you that uh, in the natural world, we don't expect these mathematically exact solitons that maintain their structure entirely to uh, exist. But we expect the more general concept of co coherent structures that are spatially, stru spatially localized structures that persist is relevant. So here's, <coughs> they're observed on all scales of nature. And there's a galaxy, which is a clear localized structure with, uh, with structure determined by, by gravity and angular momentum, which is 170,000 light years across. That's pretty large. Uh, here's the red spot of Jupiter, which has been on the, on the scale of 4 times 10 to the 7th meters. This has been a stable vortex in the atmosphere of Jupiter at least since the time that Hooke first turned his telescope on Jupiter and saw it. So it's stable in the midst of all this irregular flow. Earth ocean waves. This is a very beautiful picture from uh, the Apollo Soyuz mission. It's in the Andaman Sea. You see these uh, uh, lines here. They're actually slight uh, raises in the ocean, uh, ocean uh, surface level, not more than two or three meters. But beneath them are internal waves, which may be as much as 20 meters, sort of localized. You see, let's see, where is it here? They're actually a train of them. There's, they're all moving this way. This is the first one. That's the second one. It's about 10 kilometers apart. And they're actually where the motion in this direction is well described by that Cordovic degrees equation I wrote down. Now, how do we get this picture? It's very interesting, almost like the, the, the James Tyler story. Uh, it turns out that Exxon had an oil derrick uh, right up here. And these surface waves were manifestations of internal waves which could be 20 or 30 meters instead of just two or three. And Exxon was worried that these internal waves might knock over their oil, uh, their oil derrick. We all know what happens when you knock over or blow up oil derricks. So they paid Al Osborne, uh, who was at Torino at the time, to do a study of this. He did, and he concluded that the waves would not over, uh, turn over their derricks, so they cut off his funding. That's a, a lesson in, in, in being careful with what you, what you get what you want. Anyway, uh, tsunamis are not solitons, but they're coherent structures which travel over uh, thousands of miles and, as we know, cause enormous damage. And this is a really beautiful picture, and maybe it's to a, uh, a father's eye, of two waves interacting uh, in the shallow water on the beach. And what do we see here? Remember the phase shift we had in the quadrifact de Vries equation? You have this wave, which would have been going right here, but it interacted and it shifted. And this wave, which would have been going here, interacted and it shifted. 
And it's just like the KDV equation. This equation, actually, this, this motion, can actually be very well described by a two-dimensional equation, which has another Russian name, the kadomsev pfsvili equation. And it's an absolutely gorgeous picture off the coast of Oregon. These are laboratory fluid experiments, where these are localized. These, these coral snake-like things are regions of upwelling and downwelling fluid that go around. I'm just, the point is to show this exists on all sorts of scales. Here are pulses in an optical fiber. Uh, these are uh, actually, uh, well, we'll come back to that in a minute. What happened here? That's important in technology. It, uh, how many people have heard about Bose-Einstein condensates? Okay, this is the latest, uh, latest game in town. You can actually, in, in, you can make phase solitons in the Bose-Einstein condensates. This is from a, a recent paper. The black thing is a, it's, a dark, it's called a dark soliton because it takes away the amplitude. This is a case where it bounces off the end and comes back. And here's a picture of how it actually moves. This is the, the, showing the phase coherence. So this is 10 to the minus 6 meters. So solitons exist, and coherent structures exist on all scales. This is one of my favorites. Uh, you know, mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun, but, you know, or mad dogs and Englishmen surf in this, color, this colored water. But this is the severin bore. It creates a series of solitary-like waves, and you can surf on them in that, in that filthy water. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, uh, the practical applications for solitons. Time running on, I will simply say that if you go back here, and we'll think about it for a second, what these are are pulses in time. So these are this is a, a time slot of 50 picoseconds per division, and you either have a pulse or you don't. What you see here is this is where you start it, and this is after a thousand kilometers going through this optical wire. Thousand kilometers, long distance transmission. And you see these things are not diminished. And they're not, they, haven't inter, they haven't destroyed themselves because they have this solitonic character. How can I use this to make a telephone conversation? Suppose I assign, I, I have, I'm able to track time accurately. I assign 0 to when I don't get a soliton. I assign 1 when I get a soliton. Now I have 0 and 1, and now I have everything. And this, this actually can be used for coding. And again, Arizona has its own uh, person here. Ildar Gabitov is an expert in, in this uh, soliton transmission. These are technical details. Uh, I'll share this PowerPoint with anybody who wants it. The point is you can use this to transmit information through an optical fiber uh, around the world. Uh, and there are lots, of, uh, lots of, of, of consequences of that. It's being used in many cases. Here's another practical example. These are coherent structures are called Lagrangian coherent structures. This is Monterey Bay. And you can see this white outline here. You can't really tell it that it's there, but it's a structure in the, in, in, in the fluid that is a barrier. There's no flow across it. So it's like a sort of movable membrane that is impermeable. And so what happens is, and this is an example, you, oops, you have a region here. They've shown, here's the Lagrangian coherent structure in this model. And the red is, let's say, garbage in, in Monterey Bay. How does the garbage flow? How does your garden grow? How does the garbage flow? Here comes the garbage in this region. The region outside here, the garbage is going away. It's going away more, still trapped. The garbage outside the Lagrangian coherent structure is still, it has gone away. It's still trapped in here. 
And actually, this, this is work of, by Tom Peacock at MIT. He was brought down to the, uh, uh, to the, uh, uh, like, um, the big, big oil spill in, uh, in, in the Caribbean to study these coherent structures and see how they could hopefully disperse the oil more effectively and or contain the oil so they could clean it up. So this is a very practical application of coherent structures. Uh, finally, and I'm not going to finish too late, uh, so patterns and complex configurations basically arise because a homogeneous medium is somehow unstable. And there's a nice metaphor, which is not exact, but it's a good way to remember this, good mnemonic. They arise because of the competition between the tendency of these nonlinear systems to form these localized structures and the chaotic dynamics, which sort of mixes them around. So I'm going to show you, again, no equations this time, but a series of, uh, of uh, pictures that tell you about patterns. So this is a case when you have uh, two rotating, two, sorry, two counter-propagating flows. You have this flow going to the right and this going to the left, let's say. Uh, the upper being pink, the bluer being this lower green. And the boundary, initial boundary, this is a little bit after the start, was straight through here. It was a straight line coated yellow. Uh, so that's after a little time. Here is after a little more time. You see the boundary wrapping up. This is like the stretching and folding. So the boundary is actually undergoing the chaotic motion. You see these things being formed gradually, these more complicated structures. These are vortices. Here is periodic boundary conditions again. So it's one, two, three vortices. What's going to happen in the end? Who's going to win the competition? Well, now there seem to be only two, or maybe that's really only one vortex. And now, now it's definitely sort of one big vortex. And now these two things have been trapped together. And you see the complicated result of the mixture of chaos and, and, and coherent structures forming a pattern. It's a very, very typical paradigm. That's work of Paul Woodward. Another example in fluid flow, work of Bob Ecke. You take a fluid, you heat it. Uh, you use the same techniques that I didn't describe in detail before, but the, the light lines are uh, downwelling fluid, the dark lines are upwelling fluid, and you rotate it, and you see these patterns formed. This is the rate of rotation. These are different patterns. Still, again, you see some, some patterns that are straight lines, some patterns that are more complicated. Here's a color-coded color thing that shows the intensity of the patterns. The whole point is that if you just had a fluid sitting in, in a disk, in a, in a petri dish, and it wasn't heated or rotated, it would be stable. You heat it, and you rotate it. It breaks up into spatially homo inhomogeneous patterns. This is a very nice thing. These are this is a chemical reaction called the Belousov-Jabotinsky reaction. This is a slime mold called Dictostelium discoidium. And the point is, when you starve the slime mold, it forms these patterns, uh, uh, it forms colonies that are very similar in structure and, uh, to, the, to the BZ reaction. And we'll come to the region of that in a minute. Now, this should work. This is, the, uh, this is something, if I were even more, uh, uh, what's, the, what's the correct word? Inappropriate with my use of time, I would have, I would have uh, oh, let's get it here. I would have uh, made, done the actual chemical demonstration. I have the demonstration with me. That was something that slipped through the TSA. But this is something I filmed just the other day. 
So you can see these patterns. This is a chemical reaction. Chemical reaction. And it's actually forming a pattern. I'm going to indulge myself and tell a great story. This kind of pattern formation in chemical reactions, the fact you could have chemical oscillators or chemical patterns, was claimed to be impossible as late as 19, late 60s. The reason, there's a technical reason that if you have a chemical system and it's going to equilibrium and you're near equilibrium, then the eigenvalues of the master equation are real and it can't be in oscillations. But who said you had to be near equilibrium? Who said you couldn't be non-linearly away from equilibrium? And when you're non-linear away from equilibrium, you could get these oscillations. And the funniest thing is the people who wrote that you couldn't get these oscillations, if they'd looked in the mirror, they would have seen a biochemical oscillator. That is what we are. We are biochemical oscillators. We eat food. We have all sorts of functions that oscillate. The coupled biochemical oscillations. Obviously, you can have biochemical oscillations far, uh, from far away from equilibrium. And remember, we all want to remain far away from equilibrium, because you remember what equilibrium was for us. Okay. Okay. So um, one last thing, and then we're finished. Um, Alan Turing, who's been celebrated recently in a movie for his work on breaking the Enigma code, actually did a huge number of important things. This is probably one of his most important. He wrote a paper on the chemical basis for morph morphogenesis, why we have five of these instead of seven or six or four. Um, and it involved the, some technicalities, chemical reactions, and chemicals diffusing, like in the BZ reaction, when we just saw, to explain the emergence of patterns. And Turing patterns, this is Alan Turing, uh, the real Alan Turing, not the actor. Um, basically, the idea, his idea was, as we've said before, uniform space can be unstable into breaking up into these variegated structures of patterns. And again, as I've stressed, it's a competition between order and chaos. So there have been many examples. Uh, we're coming to the end of the talk, so I'll give you just a few pictures. We've seen the chemical reaction example. This is a, 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 some more specific work, <coughs> work of Swinney and Uyang, uh, where you can get this small speckled pattern, larger speckled patterns, stripes, all sorts of things, different chemical patterns, uh, different Turing patterns in chemical ways. And one of the most striking experiments, recent work, uh, this is a recent, uh, fairly recent PNAS article. Zebrafish, of course, are the, are the favorite, favorite thing, along with the Drosophila for biolog biologists to study. You could make the zebrafish, it, 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 it develops in a certain pattern in structures uh, uh, in its coloration, and you can alter that by messing with it with lasers at certain points in the, uh, in the system. So you can go from this sort of, this structure to that, or you can make dots, or you can make pure stripes, or you can make defected stripes. This is the real experiment, and this is a Turing pattern model. So that he, it, really, it really nails that. Okay, uh, patterns are so practical, uh, I almost didn't want to say this, but they underline everything that takes us from a boring, unstructured universe to uh, the structures that we see every day. They're important across geological formations, networks, economics. The behavior you see in patterns, so here in the zebrafish you see, these patterns emerge naturally from the underlying, uh, un underlying 
from the underlying biology, which was related to physics, which was related to mathematics. And they explain most of the, uh, the thing we see in real worlds. So let me close uh, with a summary and to try to make some of these things stick, uh, you know, the standard trick of tell them what you've told them. Uh, we've seen that nonlinearity uh, is important in the real world. It comes in almost all the time. Uh, it isn't solvable in detail necessarily, but we have paradigms of nonlinear science, which are deterministic chaos with its sensitive dependence on initial conditions. Le simple models can produce complicated behavior that can be universal. A simple model can describe something much more complex. That fractals, I didn't use this metaphor, but you could think of them as the, the fossils of chaos. The fractal structure that we saw in the logistic and, and, and standard maps is an example that comes from the chaos. We saw that solitons and coherent structures were observed in nature on all scales, and finally patterns and complex configurations observed in uh, dark, uh, arise in some sense, as metaphorically, as a competition between chaos and solitons. So let me conclude with this one image, a little bit over time, that sums up, I think, introduction to nonlinear science very concisely and beautifully. You see this large coherent structure surrounded by a very chaotic sea, and you can think of this all as one pattern. Thank you very much. Thank you. Due to the late hour, I think we will dispense with questions from the audience. However, I'm sure that Professor Campbell would be happy to answer any individual questions that you might have. Two undergraduate astronomy majors are up in the telescope room. Right now, they have the telescope on Pluto. And they can also show you the ring nebula. How, how, like can, how can I compete with Pluto? Pluto. So. Um, I hope to see some of you on October 5th for our next public evening lecture. I'll stamp any student assignments down here. The telescope is open. It's the white building, the door at the bottom, go up two stairs. And let's thank Professor Campbell one more time. Thank you.